This morning we uh, continue our way through our series of the life of Elijah and Elisha. And in fact, we conclude uh, this series this morning. We'll be in 2 Kings chapter 13 today. As we've gone through this series, we've seen that Israel has continued uh, to decay. And we're going to see yet another king come forward and yet another king fail to lead Israel as God has called them to, failing to follow their great God. And we're also going to see the Lord's prophet, Elisha, in this very last sermon in this series. We're going to see him as he is about to die and then, in fact, dies. He's been the lone voice, it seems, for some time into a very dark world, bringing hope to Israelites. And yet now he's about to die, and you've got to kind of ask the question, is all hope going to die with Elisha? that in mind, let's look to our text now, starting at verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Joash, the son of Jehazi, began uh, to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he found fought against the Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not found within the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now we learn about Joash's interactions with Elisha. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness for which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him, and he wept before him, crying, My father, my father! the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it, and then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and he stopped. And then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you'll strike Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, and he stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them. He had compassion on them. He turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and would not destroy them nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadid, his son, became king in his place. Then Joash, the son of Joaz, took again from Ben-Hadid, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Joaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel, defeated them just as Elisha had foretold, just as he had promised. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you 
today for your word. We pray it would come alive before us. We pray that this time now would not just be a time of learning, but that it, our worship would continue as we hear your word. Oh, would our hearts sing because of the wonders of the truth of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Recently, I've been watching through a TV show called Suits. It's no longer on the air, but you may have seen it before. It's about a bunch of lawyers in a prestigious New York law firm, and they are some nasty people on this show, just constantly backbiting, constantly doing whatever they can to get a leg up for themselves, betraying their dear friends, and then what happens? You know, they betray their friends on the show, the other lawyers, and then they make up, and they make nice, and they come back, and it it seems like it's genuine, but you know what's going to happen again because they are really after what's good for them, ultimately. I'm reminded of that as I look at this passage, as we look to this new king, Joash. He comes to Elisha. He seems at first to be concerned for Elisha, but is he really? Or is Joash just... Concern for himself, verse 14, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and he wept before him. Seems genuine. He was weeping before him or is he just weeping maybe as the Israelites did? You remember them as they were on their wilderness journeys and they were weeping, longing to be back in Egypt. What kind of weeping was this? We're not told. But what does he say? He cries aloud, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. These are important words. I don't know if you recognize them, but these are actually the exact same words that Elisha spoke when Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind. These were the words of Elisha. And why did Elisha say these words when Elijah was taken away? Because what do these words say? They acknowledge who truly fights on behalf of Israel that it is Yahweh who fights, it is God who fights their battles. And Elisha said those words saying, now that God's prophet is being taken up, will God continue to fight the battles of his people? And of course, Elisha continues the ministry of Elijah, doesn't he? He takes on that mantle in a very literal way. And God continues, as we've seen through the work of Elisha, to fight battles on behalf of Israel. Now, Joash says these words. Why does Joash say these words? He's no doubt concerned. It seems pretty clear the prophet is about to die, and it's then that we see Joash showing up. And is it because maybe he's very concerned for himself, very concerned for his reign, for what it's, what's going to happen? If, if Elisha is taken away, does that mean that God's no longer going to fight on behalf of Israel? Is God going to leave with Elisha? And Elisha, unlike Elijah, Elisha has has no successor. Now, Elisha hears these words, and what does he do? What does he say? He says in verse 15, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, draw back the bow, and he drew it, and then Elisha places his hands on the king's hands, and you just kind of get a sense of the weight here of what's going on, right? Joash should know at this point something really serious is taking place right now. He said, open a window eastward, and he opened it, and then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. Then Elisha speaks again. He says, 
That's the Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Syria. You shall fight the Syrians at Aphek until you have made an end of them. Don't miss how epical this is for the king. This is a moving moment. Joash should understand the weight of what's going on here. That what Elisha is doing is he's having him act out, if you will, the battle that's going to take place against Syria. This is important stuff that's going on. Joash should understand the weight of what's going on. He's just received this incredible promise of victory over Syria and all because he's acting these things out as a picture of what's going to take place. And it gets a little weirder. This whole passage is weird, by the way. I haven't said that yet. Elisha says, take the arrows. And he took them. He said to the king, strike the ground with them. Now remember, he still should be in the mode of, okay, I'm acting this out, right? This is the prophet I'm dealing with. The one who, whose God fights on behalf of Israel. And so what does he do? He takes the arrows and he knocks them on the ground three times and he stops. Now, you might for a moment have some sympathy for Joash as we continue in the story. Elisha's going to get pretty mad. And, and is this really fair? I mean, does Joash really know what's going on? And that's why I've tried to paint it as I have is Joash should know what's going on. He should know the weight of this interaction with God's prophet. And as one commentator says, it should be pretty clear from the language in this passage that the prophet really intends for him to keep banging those arrows until they're smashed into smithereens. He should have seen that all of this was him acting out a victory over Syria. And so we read what the result is. Verse 19, Elisha becomes angry with him. He says, you should have struck it five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of them. But now, now you're only going to strike them down three times. You're only going to strike them down three times. The picture here is that Elisha has written Joash a huge check. And Joash should be realizing that. But he's totally failing to see it, isn't he? And he only like cashes like a part of it. He doesn't cash the whole thing. We see that Joash, though he seems to come with some tenderness towards the prophet, he's really a very half-hearted guy at best. I think, I think that's actually being a little generous towards Joash, given the summary that we read at the very beginning this morning of how he just continued the evil of his forefathers. But he's very half-hearted here, isn't he? He seems to be concerned, but is he really, or is he really just after his own ends? Now, the story isn't just negative news, right? Because Elisha still promises that there's going to be some victory. He doesn't just say, Joe Ash, okay, I'm done with you. But it could have been so much greater. The end of Syria could, could have come, but no, it didn't because of a half-hearted king. Yes, he came in tears, but he was only partially doing what his job was as the king only partially doing that job of leading Israel as they were to be led in worship of their great God. A half-hearted king at best. And again, I said, that's generous. Let's think of ourselves. Are you half-hearted? Are you a half-hearted 
disciple, only partial. You know, there's, there's those areas of your life that you will not let Jesus near. I mean, there's those areas where you have given over and, you, hey, he can be the Lord in those areas, but there's some areas I'm going to reserve. Maybe there are your pet sins that you don't want him getting too close to. Maybe you're afraid to really admit to him and confess to him. If you find yourself to not give yourself in fullness, but only in part. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. You've probably heard this before. I'm pretty sure I've used it before. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Are you satisfied just making mud pies in your backyard? Or do you understand the glory of... of, the beach and the ocean and building sandcastles and jumping in the waves. Do you understand the difference? Joe Ash seemed to be completely content just making mud pies in the backyard, not understanding the fullness of what was promised and what was being brought to him. Right there, he had God's prophet before him, and he squandered it. He squandered it. But there's great beauty in our passage, isn't there? That even amidst this half-hearted king, and we've actually seen it as we've gone through the life of Elisha and Elijah, as we've gone through First and Second Kings, that everything seems to be spiraling down. And there's a lot of other half-hearted kings like Joash. There's many kings who are just downright evil. We've looked at them, right? And yes, God brings judgment. We've seen judgment many times in our passages. But sometimes he does like he does here as he brings mercy and grace even in the midst of this king who doesn't really worship as he should. Why does he do this? We actually learned a little bit farther down in our passage, down in verse 22. Now, Hazael, king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. Now, Jehoaz, that's Joash's dad. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them out from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Tadid, his son, became king in his place, and then Joash the Joash of our story, the son of Jehoaz, took again from Ben-Hadid, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoaz, his father in war, three times, just, just as Elisha had said. Three times he defeats Syria and recovered the cities of Israel. Why does God do this? With a king who's not really even faithful, Why? Why is he gracious to them? Why does he have compassion on them? Why is he turned towards them, as our passage says? It's because of his covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this story here is a reminder that God keeps his promises. He will not 
forsake his promises. He will not turn against them. And this was a testimony to the Israelites who are first reading this. God is going to keep his promises to you even if things are really bad, even if you're off in exile. God is going to keep his promises to you. And you need to be careful. Don't do as King Joash did. Don't squander God's mercy and grace towards you. You see, if we're a half-hearted people, you understand that's what we're doing, right? Squandering God's mercy. Squandering his grace towards us. God makes an incredible promise here. Makes an incredible promise here to Israel, even amidst a a half-hearted king. This promise of military victory. But our passage doesn't end there. It would be good if that was what it had, but oh, the promise and the hope of this passage gets so, so much better. There's a promise we see of new life. A few, few years ago, there was a reporter in, in Canada. And like any good reporter, loves a good mystery, right? And solving and figuring out what's going on. And she began to notice hearts like popping up all over town. Like plastered up on billboards and on walls and stuff. And like, that's weird. Lots of people in the community noticed it and said, that's weird. Then a week or so or whatever it was later, a signs began to show up beside those hearts with the name of a park, with a date and a time. And so being a good reporter, she wanted to figure it out so she could write a good story. And she goes to the park that day to find out what in the world is going on. She finds a ton of people gathered there in the middle of the park. She sees a man with a box over his head. And he's handing out flowers to everybody who comes up. And so to play along, she goes on and she does like everyone else does. But instead of just being given one flower, she's given the whole bouquet. The man takes off his box on his head, gets down on a knee. She said, this was the man who I'd loved for the past eight years. This was all for me. Weird thing going on here. These hearts, the stuff like popping up all over the city. She didn't know what she was going to find when she went to the, to the end of this, but what she found there was quite life-changing for her, wasn't it? Even in the midst of really odd signs. We have some really odd signs in our passage this morning. We can be tempted to just shrug our shoulders as like people come out of tombs and stuff. It just sounds weird. But I hope that today we'll see that that actually from this weird story comes great and incredible, incredible life-transforming hope, much more transforming than the weird signs for, for that reporter lady. It starts in verse 20. So Elisha died, and they buried him. No pomp, no circumstance. No signs and wonders, nothing incredible going on. All we read is Elisha is dead and he's buried. Israel's prophet is gone. There's no successor. All hope for Israel seems to have died with him. But should we really expect Elisha to go out like that? I mean, remember Elijah, how did he go out? I mean, whirlwind, I mean, it was... And remember, Elijah is Elijah's successor. If you're reading the text, you should expect, okay, something's coming. 
Something dramatic is going to happen. And something dramatic happens, doesn't it? We're continuing in verse 20. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. Here we see how bad things are in Israel, right? This shouldn't be happening. Bands of marauders shouldn't be coming into your country every year. The king should be able to stop this, but he's clearly unable. And a man, we read in verse 21, was being buried. And behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. You get the picture here. They're going out there. They're trying to bury their loved one. Marauding Parter comes in. They're trying to get out of there with their lives, and they just chunk. I know it sounds bad, but that's what they're doing. They're just chunking the guy into Elisha's tomb. They didn't know whose tomb it was, probably. They're just trying to get rid of the body and get out of there with their lives. And then we read what? And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, Elisha evidently has been dead a while, but he's just bones. As the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and he stood on his feet. What? You know, I mean, now we, we could be tempted and I don't want us to think there's nothing magical going on with Elisha's bones here. If you've seen like the Indiana Jones Last Crusade and you got like the, the chalice, the cup of Christ, you know, and like it's got these magical properties somehow. To, no, that's not true. Elisha's bones are not magical. They don't carry with them magical properties. That's not what's going on here. It's not Elisha's bones that work the miracle. It's just like all the miracles that Elisha performed. It wasn't Elisha that was performing the miracles. It was his great God that was performing the miracles. It's through the power of Elisha's God that this man touches his dead bones and comes back out alive. And in a sense here, what does God do? He allows Elisha to share some last words. We can think of these as the last words of the prophet. Okay? He had just, in our story, in the passage we looked at anyway, he just acted out a victory for them, right? He acted out this victory over Syria. And now in these last words of Elisha, what does he get to do? Act out God's great and incredible victory over death. It's testifying to the power of Elisha's great God, a God who even has the power over death itself, and pointing Israel to the, to the very thing where their hope should really be in, not in a victory over Syria. Yeah, that's good, that's helpful, that's great, but it should be their great hope that they have a God of resurrecting power, who brings the dead back to life. Now, just as we've seen lots of miracles throughout the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, just a reminder here that these happen in the course of their ministry because this is a very important moment of redemptive history. That's usually when miracles happen, right? Whenever important things are taking place, and that's the case here. And these miracles, they point to something greater than themselves, Okay? It's not about this guy rising from the dead. It's pointing ultimately to something greater. And in this case, the hope that in Yahweh, there, there, there's a victory far greater than that over Syria. You see, true hope in Yahweh, not half-hearted hope, but true hope, true trust 
in Yahweh leads to victory over the greatest enemy of all, death itself. Even in death. We see Elisha's ministry pointing to that. A great hope. The great hope that is ultimately in his great God who can even raise the dead back to life. Now, this is an odd miracle. Okay, we need to grant that. It's very odd. But what I want us to see, and I hope we see this morning, is that it's a miracle that makes perfect sense. Especially when we see that Jesus, with his death, the same thing happens. Except even bigger and even grander. And we're going to get to that event in a moment where the same thing happens, where, where people come out of graves. But first, we need to make an important connection. And we may have said it a little bit, but we need, I want to say it clearly this morning. Throughout the Old Testament, following the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, there's this expectation that Elijah is going to come back, preparing the way for the Messiah. He's going to usher in the Messiah, be the herald for the Messiah. And what we see when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see this as, even in the next couple of weeks as we jump into the Gospel of John starting next week, that John the Baptist is the, the second Elijah, if you will, maybe the, the, the better Elijah that comes along to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus even verifies this. Matthew 17, he says this, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of what? John the Baptist, the second Elijah, this greater Elijah who has come. Bruce Walkie puts it this way. Elijah and John the Baptist, they have many similarities. They, they both announce judgment. They both call Israel to repentance, don't they? They're followed by common people. They dress alike. They confront ambivalent kings. They face bloodthirsty queens, if you remember their stories, right? They're rejected by the authorities viciously after their victories. They question God's calling in their life. And they designate a greater successor, don't they? Now, if John the Baptist is a second Elijah, if you will, what should we expect of Elisha? Elijah had his successor, Elisha. We shouldn't be surprised that, that John the Baptist has a successor. A tr- one, he transforms, transitions leadership, if you will, to another, to a greater one, John the Baptist, or to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist transfers it to Jesus Christ. And think of Elisha. Just think of his name. What does his name mean? Elisha means God saves, right? What does Jesus' name mean? Yahshua. Yahweh saves. Their their names are even closely connected, right? So just as Elisha comes after Elijah, Jesus comes after John the Baptist. And think of their ministries. Think about how similar some of the things are. I'm just going to go through a few again. This is Dr. Walkie speaking. Both are designated by a prophet whom the general populace recognized as a true prophet. They're both recognized. One, Elisha by Elijah. Jesus by John the Baptist, right? 
Both received the Spirit on the other side of the Jordan. They're surrounded by more disciples than their predecessors. They're itinerant miracle workers. They give life in a land of death. They both cleanse lepers. They both heal the sick. They both defy gravity. Remember that act said? Remember Jesus walking on water? They both reverse death by raising dead sons and restoring them to their mothers. They both help widows in desperate circumstances. They're both kinsmen redeemers to save from slavery. They both feed the hungry. They both minister to Gentiles. They prepare and sit at tables with sinners. They lead captives. They both have covetous disciples. You remember Gehazi, don't you? And surely you remember Judas. And finally, they both end their lives in a life-giving tomb from which people flee. Why all of these similarities? Because of the way in which Elisha is pointing to the better Elisha the second and better Elisha who is to come, the one who does not just point to a God who saves, but who is the God who saves. And how does he save? He saves in the most extraordinary ways. And in the stories of of Elijah and Elisha, we've seen over and over of Israel suffering judgment, right? Because they've continued to, to go away from God because of their lack of faithfulness. And these judgments against Israel were meant to be a foreshadowing of the judgment that was going to come to Israel whenever they went into exile, right? And ultimately, as as difficult as some of these judgments that we've talked about have been, we got to remember that, that, that Israel was precisely getting what they deserved, right? And if anything, they weren't getting quite what they deserved, and God was being gracious to them in the amount of judgment that he was bringing. And all of those judgments, what do they foreshadow? All of those judgments of Israel that we've seen, what do they foreshadow? What do they point to? But of course, that ultimate judgment day. That judgment day for all who do not put their faith in Christ. Now, the extraordinary thing is that when we get to the greater Elisha, that when we get to Jesus, that the great prophet's ministry is not just a mere replication of Elisha's ministry. This great prophet, Jesus Christ, what does he come and do? He perfectly obeys the law in every single way. Perfectly keeps covenant with his God. Perfectly obeys. And what does he receive as a result? He receives judgment. The perfect one receives judgment. And if you think about it, he is the one. He suffers exile, if you will, from his father. Do you remember those words on the cross? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect one, the one who perfectly kept the law, receives the judgment of exile from the Father, taking the penalty for Israel's sin, for their half-hardness, taking the penalty for you and I, for our failure, for our failures over and over again, for our sin, which is manifold, as we continue each and every day to turn away from him, to go our own way, to do our own thing. But... 
The story doesn't end there. The story does not end with Jesus forsaken, does it? We won't get to the whole rest of the story, but I do want to read a little bit more down in verse 50 from Matthew again. Jesus cried again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Jesus died. And then verse 51, and behold, things are going to get strange. They get a little weird for us. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. And remember, this is the second Elijah. We, Elisha, we should not be surprised about what we read next. The tombs also were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Now, there's many things about that that probably leave us scratching our heads right now. You probably have many questions and we're probably not going to answer any of them. We'll save those for another date. They're good questions, probably. Because I want to focus on the main point here. And the point seems to be that even in Jesus' death, even his death can't help but what? Testify of the hope of the greatest victory this world has ever known, Jesus' victory over death. Matthew here, he immediately connects tightly Jesus' death as a, a conquering death. That is that Jesus' death, his, his being condemned in our place, what does it bring? It brings forth new life from the graves. Back in the Elisha narrative, Elisha's bones, this man being brought back to life in that story, the Israelites and us being reminded of what kind of God we have. We have a God of resurrection. The resurrection that we have seen and that comes in the most ultimate way in Jesus Christ. That's what Elisha's bones are pointing to. They're pointing to the one who ultimately can save, the one who will ultimately reverse sin and death. This strange thing happening in that graveyard so many years ago, it's pointing to Jesus and to his great victory. And it's reminding you and I of the great hope we have that this world does not have the final word, does it? That we can with the Apostle Paul taunt death itself and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That, my friends, that is the hope that Elisha's grave points to. The great hope of our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life 
The one who promises that if you believe, if you trust in him, though you die, yet shall you live. That promises that everyone who believes in him shall never die. On that day, Jesus asked Martha a question. I think the question is for us this morning as well. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to know, understand, comprehend the wonder of your power, of your work, the wonder of your promises, the wonder that is the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his reversal of death itself. Oh, would you help us to no longer be half-hearted disciples satisfied with playing with mud pies in our backyard. Oh, that we would be full-orbed disciples desiring to worship and follow you to take up our cross and follow our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Oh, Father, would you help us to believe the truth of these words this day? Would you work them deeply into our heart? Might we know, not just intellectually, but to the very depths of our soul, the wonder and the great hope of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one in whose name we now pray. Amen.